Hello and welcome to Inside the Artist Studio. My name is Sean Davis Newton here with the Cups and Cakes Network. And uh, today I'm excited to share an interview that I did a measly couple of weeks ago with Brian Borchert from Dusted. Uh, we talk about his brand new record, Dusted 3, which, as you may have guessed, is the third Dusted record. Uh, we talk about his work in the band Holy Fuck. And uh, we talk about his pandemic year move back to the East Coast and how, uh, how the pandemic year has been treating him in general. This is a really fun rapid fire. Uh, Brian talks about spending some time uh, as a clown, as a teenager, uh, not only a clown, but a clown who is uncomfortable around children. So we talk about some of the consequences of that. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a fun episode. As per usual, there is some foul language in this episode, so listener beware. And if you want to catch more episodes of this podcast, as well as other audio, video, and written content, you can head over to cupsandcakespod.com. That's the Cups and Cakes Network website. Again, that is cups, the letter N, cakespod.com. Here's Brian Borchert from Dusted. Hi, this is Brian Borchert from Dusted. Perfect. Well, uh, thanks so much for uh, coming on inside the artist studio here. Uh, just to <laughs> run through the format on mic this time really quick, we're going to do a little rapid fire right off the front and then uh, and then go into more standard uh, interview stuff. We'll talk about Dusted 3, which is coming out uh, July 23rd here, 2021, which is what about 10 days away from when we're recording this now um and then uh, and then we'll play a track off that record right at the end so without any further ado we'll uh jump into the rapid fire uh do you uh prefer tea or coffee oh coffee all the way (laughs) is it uh is it like a caffeine thing or are you are you like big on getting caffeinated we'll say (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> nah, you know, I uh I have a pretty uh sensitive threshold. My uh I I love coffee and you know, I I start my day with uh, a a coffee and then I love a second one in the afternoon and if I do any more than that, I'm screwed. So <laughs> I just get uh, I don't know. I kind of need coffee with food. I'm not one of those people that can like scarf back a black coffee on an empty stomach first thing in the morning. I need to like uh, get something nutritious to go with it. And I always will take it with a pinch of cream. And it's just like, I like the, uh, the kind of round nutty comforting aspect of it, as opposed to the acrid acidic, um, bitey aspect of it. That's that's my coffee intake right there. Uh, do you have a a favorite baked good? (laughs) Yeah, I do. Um, this one's personal to me. My wife, uh, is Swedish. So she makes a, a, a Swedish uh, classic called a bular. Bular basically means bun or or a roll. And uh, your basic bular, uh, you know, she. I suppose Swedes might differ on this, but you could get uh, cinnamon ones or cardamom. Um, and so, you know, every few weeks uh, she'll make a really big batch of that, and we freeze them, and, you know, they're they're a staple in the house, and anyone who comes to stay or visit is always uh, quite evidently disappointed whenever we're, we were out of stock. <laughs> so, she, you know, maybe she should go into business. It's really good. <laughs> uh, what's the first car you ever owned? Oh, that's a good one. Um, when I was... So, my older sister, she's two years older than me. She got this car. My dad picked it up somewhere cheap. It was... It's kind of, you know, it plays on the joke of a lemon because it was a lemon yellow. That's the factory color of a 77 Toyota Corolla. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then it was my turn to get it. So, I, it by the time I got the car, the joke was that the car was old enough to drive itself. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it had manual... St- steering uh if it it was great it felt like a chunk of lead on the road like it 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 was just tight to drive especially with that tight steering steering wheel but uh it was such a good car and then uh you know i was in a small town so it was quite conspicuous driving around in this bright yellow car um i did a couple things to it um 
first of all, a friend of mine and I, we did a drive-by at McDonald's where we ran in and stole a bunch of their fake plastic plants and, and ran out again and decorated <laughs> our car. We drove off in a hurry. Um, that was one of my only uh, arrestable offenses as a kid. And so I had it, you know, decorated with plants. And then the key uh, ignition, um, something happened where it just like it, it got disjointed and the key wouldn't fit anymore and my, my dad's pretty handy so he came to my rescue he hotwired the car and when we got it home he built a toggle switch which turns the car on and then a push button ignition and everybody thought that was so cool because it essentially turned it into something like the batmobile um which <laughs> is funny now because all of our cars are push button ignitions but you know back then it, it was a pretty unheard of idea i only needed the key at that point to uh unlock the steering so i had to have my keys on me at all times unlock the door get in and unlock the steering and then it was a matter of uh, toggle switch on push button start yeah definitely <laughs> the coolest car around <laughs> <laughs> what's the weirdest job you've ever had uh you're taking me right back to the same time <laughs> um, I'll give you two back, uh, my two back-to-back -back jobs in yeah. the era of the the lemon yellow Toyota Corolla. So the so I like most kids, I started out working for my parents. Um, you know, in that case, it was mowing lawns or doing odd jobs. Um, you know, I'll just jump. I'm not going to tell you two two jobs. I'm going to the the definitely the one to tell is my first job outside of working for my parents. I went down to the employment center where they had a. a a bulletin board where people would post job job uh, listings, and um, I took the job as a clown um, and a <laughs> you know a singing telegrams. I worked for a company called Blooming Balloons, and I would show up to work, and they would tell me what I where I was going, what I was going to be dressed as. I from for my homework, I had to learn how to tie balloon animals and paint faces and and the funny thing is as a as a 16 year old i wasn't comfortable around kids you know like a lot of i didn't have any younger siblings or cousins around me so yeah. i i would have to go to uh children's parties filled with like five-year-old six-year-olds and you know and and at that age you, you kind of you're not you don't really want to be hanging out with kids painting their faces and stuff. So I, I didn't like the job. Um, also I would have to get ready and in costume before I left to go to the job. And because everybody knew my car, they knew it was me. <laughs> and then they would wave like my friends from high school would be like, Hey, it's Brian. And instead it would be a chicken driving the car or I would already be in my full clown paint uh, and you know, it'd been, it would have been a cool job if I was into it. Like if I could roll with that and, and yeah. uh, really own it, you know, then I'd be the coolest guy around. I could roll down the window and play like crazy music and be like, yeah, motherfuckers, here comes the clown. But instead <laughs> I was like, oh shit, here they come. And, uh, two jobs stand out. My first one ever, I had to dress up as a, a gorilla and go to a restaurant to, to surprise a <laughs> server there on her birthday. Uh, so they tucked me into this little alcove where I would be hidden so that I could surprise her. You know, it was a pretty drab and dreary restaurant and it had stucco ceilings. So the, the helium balloons were popping against the stucco ceiling <laughs> and uh, I was kind of giving myself away. So I wasn't doing a very good job of, of concealing myself. And then another job, because where I grew up was uh, pretty... Uh, bilingual um particularly right. with acadians um so the acadian french uh community hired myself and the the more uh experienced clown the two of us went to a hall in a, an acadian area to entertain the kids and um they own they all spoke french and you know i had had some french immersion but i wasn't comfortable so so uh, the more experienced clown, she was French as well. So she was able to speak with the kids, and she devised a story that I was a, I was just a baby clown, and I didn't know how to talk. So I was like this <laughs> mute mimey clown, <laughs> which made it even kind of worse because then I was just like this <laughs> stupid clown who couldn't talk to anyone. Ah, uh, it's just like dooby doo. And yeah, that, I think yeah. that was probably my last last gig as a clown. I yeah, it it wasn't for me. I'd be better at it now. Not to dwell too much on this, but how did you even get that job then? Like, 
Yeah, I guess they just didn't have a lot of people applying for it. it I mean, it, not not to get all into the the you know, you know, I'm not going to harsh on everybody and be like, you know, in my days, I'm not going to be the grumpy curmudgeon. But <laughs> in in Yarmouth, Nova Scotia, in the '90s, everyone had a job. Like, right? You know, I moved to Toronto and met a great deal of great, awesome friends. And at some point, I realized none of them had part-time jobs when they were teenagers. None of, and most of them didn't. I, right. um, you know, I had I had a part-time job in high school, and then I had two jobs in university, and then I went to Toronto and I got two jobs because I was trying to make ends meet. And I think it was kind of uh, the rural Nova Scotian work ethic, where you, in order to have a life, you had to have a driver's license because everybody lived in you know far-flung regions there was no like walking to your friend's house kind of thing right and uh and you'd have a job so for me like when my parents said okay you need to get a job i went down to that um like the employment center and looked on that bulletin board that was the only thing that wrote me back you know for that age my option was either that or a hot dog salesman <laughs> you know like one of right. those per, a vend a vendor with a cart and you had to get a job. It's kind of like picking a name out of a hat. You just had to get what was available because that's what you did at that age. Everybody went and got a job after school so they'd have some income. And, yeah. and I jumped ship. As soon as I got my dream job, I got, a, I got hired at the one and only local record store, and that was my dream job. So <laughs> I split the clowning business forever. I left it to all the... All the other clowns in the clowning business, and I went <laughs> off to uh, work at uh, the record store in the Kmart Mall. No, sorry, I stand corrected. It was in the Zellers Mall, um, <laughs> and that was my dream job. Okay, <laughs> uh, what's your favorite? Uh, what's your favorite pit stop on tour? Ah, good question. Well, you know, there's the usual. Um, but one, you know, it's we've doing we've been touring long enough and doing some of the same routes that things are starting to be a bit familiar. You know, right. like oh shit, we're in that place. And uh, there's one spot as you're going across the corner of Idaho, where um, you know Idaho is considered to be a, a very boring. Uh, right, it's the prairies, and uh, and uh, let me because I have the advantage of searching for this while I'm on the phone. Um. Yes. Okay. Curadalen. I almost said Curadan. Curadalen. It's actually this beautiful little uh, corner. You. I only drive through the corner of Idaho. You kind of hit it, and you're pretty immediately out. But there's this nice little passage where, um, we, you know, we found that in that part of the world, there's a couple things I look I, I like, and I, I, the, one of them is uh, the picnic, um, park kind of stop so there's a, a, a sweet little spot with a nice trees it's kind of a, a, a coniferous forest so there's a lot of uh, needles covering the ground it gives good open space for for playing frisbee so we always get out there it's kind of a tour ritual where we'll stop there and have a have a rollicking game of frisbee before we get back in the van <laughs> because that is kind of a a torturous part of the trip it's pretty boring otherwise it's like the, the one and only nice little like thing you get and it, and also in that part of the world uh the american midwest for some reason little maybe are you where are you are you you're in you're in saskatchewan are you i'm i'm in edmonton in edmonton yeah. yeah so there we go so in edmonton if you were to you know drive south to your american counterparts you may you may have noticed this that a lot of the highway stops have uh um little cappuccino huts yeah yeah (laughs) and they're not franchised and they're in the middle of nowhere and that's when you're most desperate and you're like oh for (laughs) christ's sakes i'm never gonna get a good coffee again and then suddenly you realize like they're all over the place yeah no more tim hortons no more starbucks you know i love those little in the middle of nowhere they almost always have like some really friendly university student working there <laughs> probably someone who went down to the local employment office and, and found the <laughs> listing on a bulletin board and then they're working at a and they're slinging cappuccinos and espressos so yeah you know there's that's kind of the silver line lining of driving through otherwise kind of like you know dull prairie stuff yeah yeah 
if you could put together a uh, like fantasy lineup, like a bill of any kind of handful of bands that you could see together, um, let's say bands that either still exist or bands that no longer do, um, uh, what what uh, what what kind of bands would you pick? Oh wow, it's that's a you've been giving me really easy questions, <laughs> and now <laughs> I have to really think about it. I, I would say for for simplicity's sake, I'll have to keep it in the realm of reality because if I could just dream up anybody, like anyone alive or dead, it would just be too crazy. Like, I, where would I go from there? I'd have like Sun Ra and and, and uh, you know the birds and 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 broadcast and the Beatles and. It, yeah, and Alice Coltrane would be there, and it would just be too crazy. Like I could, I'd, it'd be never ending. Um, so you know, it. I do think of this a lot though, because one of my intentions, having moved to uh, rural Nova Scotia, was I'm trying. I like the idea of bringing um, different kinds of music to these places. Um, Right, because of course in rural Nova, here you get a lot of cover bands, or you'll get some Celtic stuff. Um, you get it's people, people tend to play it safe to try to win over the the disproportionate amount of retirees that tend to live out here. So I don't know. I'm thinking about it all the time. I'm like, I just want to bring like Mets and Shabazz Palaces, and yeah. and uh, I just want to bring like a mix of stuff that sort of doesn't. Fit. I mean, those those two bands. Sure, they might fit. Like you know, uh, but still, you, you get the idea of um, trying to do something that surprises people. And I, I kind of miss that about. I I didn't. I don't know if I really benefited from it. Maybe I'm too young. But I know that in the '90s, it seemed that uh, there were a lot of tours happening where bands had quite different styles and sounds. Um, right. Maybe they just, I think they appeal to a certain subculture. Like, oh, if you're into like arty music or, you know, you like, you know, late night radio stations or something, we're going to put a bill together that's going to satisfy your interests. And then by the time Holy Fuck came around, it was so cute at this point. Like people were trying to put bands together that sounded the same. And, you know, like our booking agent, our first big tour that band fuck buttons got off. They were trying to push them as our opener. <laughs> we were like, we we're like, no, why the hell would we do that? We don't want to go out on tour. Like the, the fuckity fuck fest with, you know, it just was, it's too, it was too cute. And then we wouldn't, it's not dynamic. So, right. I, so I, I'm going to, I feel like I've, uh, I've, I've skirted around an actual answer, but I'm going <laughs> to leave it at that. I think I'd like to pick things that, um, that complete maybe a whole picture. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't want, it, it doesn't have to be something that everyone likes everything, but hopefully they like something about everything. And it, it kind of like, uh, gets people to think, I guess that's, that's my pretentious answer. <laughs> you know, I, I will say, uh, having done most of my, like, uh, growing up in the music scene, I guess, and in, in, in Edmonton here, um, there's something nice about kind of smaller cities, I think, as opposed to a place like Toronto or Montreal, where, you know, if, for the most part, if you're putting together a bill here, um, it you can't find three bands that sound the same. <laughs> um, because, like, everybody's in their own kind of little genre world, and everybody's pals, right? But um, mm-hmm. it, it's not like there's a big scene of, like... Uh, whatever like 60s influenced rock music right it's like there's two bands Mm -hmm. um um and so yeah it it makes it kind of you end up with a lot of really weird bills (laughs) that's great that's the way it should be for sure Uh, and yeah it feels like we can get kind of subsectioned i think the strength of toronto having lived there as long as i did it is um on one hand, yes, we had enough that you could put together these bills where everybody is not only friends, they kind of look, they dress the same, they sound the same, and it right. gets a bit monotone. But the good thing I found in Toronto was that there was enough of an audience that no no one was ever overly envious of one another. I, Because I, I, I've started in Halifax where it's a smaller scene and the metal bands would be jealous of the funk bands, you know, <laughs> like, man, 
everybody like Sloan or whatever, something like that. But it'd be like, <laughs> yeah, but you're playing rockabilly. Like, why does it matter? You know, but people were right. kind of observing were the one base audiences. Like, there's only so many ears to listen in this town. And right now they're all going to, you know, this type of thing. And it would make people kind of bummed out. And it was a shame to see that. Like, it wasn't as friendly as I would have liked it to have been. So Right, yeah. The, what I yeah, that's what I liked about moving to Toronto was seeing that the the, the everybody was kind of getting there was a, a I guess a, an abundance like oh there's enough there's enough people there's enough concert goers, um, and we can all do our thing. I, I like that. Yeah. Well, we got uh, two quick rapid fire ones left here. Uh, is there an album that spurred your love of music? Hmm. Uh. It, not one in particular. I I, I think um, uh, it, it, like I went through stages, but I, I mean this is probably common for people in my situation where uh, my love of music started quite young. So right. it's not like it was like something that happened in the background. I wasn't really paying attention to, and then in my teenage years, maybe something kind of woke me up to it. But it was more that from the time I was, you know, my daughter's age now, she's like two and a half years old, you know, in my house when I was that young, my mom would be playing Led Zeppelin records and Neil Young records, Beatles records. And I remember her like, yeah, I was probably young enough that I wasn't in school yet. Cause I was probably at home with her while my brother and sister were in school. And I remember her, us looking at the Led Zeppelin album and she pointed at John Bonham and, and explained to me that he died choking on his own vomit. <laughs> <laughs> and that didn't leave me. Like, I don't think my mom needed to tell me that detail. Like, yeah. It's not like, <laughs> it wasn't cautionary. It wasn't like, hey, if you drink too much, don't sleep on your back. You know, it was just, uh, <laughs> it's just an example of like my mom and I like list, actively listening together and she yeah. would play piano she would play Joni Mitchell songs on the piano and I thought that was all really cool um and then by the time I was old enough to start you know finding my own music and I was still influenced by my my older siblings and I was probably really young but my brother got into I guess we both kind of did maybe he kind of led the charge but we both got into break dancing and and hip-hop music and I remember hearing grandma yeah, I remember hearing Grandmaster Flash for the first time, and, and it just blew my mind. I loved all the sounds, and, uh, you know, so that's an ex- that's just an example of how it kind of goes in stages. Like, on one hand, I'm listening to the Beatles as a kid, and, and then I'm, you know, I'm still a kid, slightly older kid, and I'm now listening to, you know, Fat Boys and Grandmaster Flash. And, and I guess that kind of kept going, and by the time I was in uh, high school, maybe not even, I'd say junior high, um, when we finally got cable because we lived very rural and it wasn't an option. So it's not like we were kids who got to turn on the TV and have like, you know, 14 channels and much yeah. music and stuff like that. We had, we had one and a half channels basically. And suddenly we had much music and I, I really took a deep dive into what else was was out there stuff I'd missed and what I got really into then, which was probably the first time in my life that I picked my own music that wasn't, you know, through family or whatever, um, was, was like, uh, Soundgarden louder than love. So just pre teen spirit stuff from Seattle, like just before, before it blew up big. And I was just, you know, just young enough. I was I was too young to drive a car, but, I, would, you know, mom and dad would drop me off at school and I'd have my cassettes with me and the other kids would make fun of me because I'd have these weird records and stuff. And so that was, I was, you know, getting into Sonic Youth and uh, stuff like that. Like yeah. stuff that I, I was a guitar, I was a guitar player already, but I didn't know how to play this music because I didn't know at that point in time that you could tune your guitar differently, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> I was... I was mesmerized. I was like, what the hell is this music? It was really out there. And that yeah. was kind of what, I think that was the beginning of me kn- knowing that I wanted to do it myself. Yeah. Well, uh, the very last, very last one then on the rapid fire half of things. Uh, are there any kind of up and comers in your neck of the woods or, or uh, uh, bands that are underappreciated in your mind that you want to give a quick shout out to? And, uh, and yeah, kind of recommend, I guess. 
Mm-hmm. That's, man, I feel like I'm going to, like, dodge that question again. It, it's funny. <laughs> I, I <laughs> Well, these are supposed to be rapid fire, and I'm turning them all into uh, kind of uh, slow, <laughs> slow shots here. But uh, um, I, I, it's, it's weird, though. I, I really did move out. And uh, being where I live now, like I, I've always been really community. Ever since I, you know, got out of a rural environment and, and into a city, I became really locally focused. And there really just isn't a local focus at the moment. And I know that the pandemic has hasn't helped because right. I think I envision I envision myself going out more and going to Halifax, which is an hour and a half, and not just actually closer to an hour. And uh, maybe I'd be tapping back into something like finding things that I was not otherwise aware of and that has not happened so mostly what I do is like everybody else right now I'm stuck on online and uh you know I I absolutely love Cindy Lee's records I've, I've loved all the ones released so far and 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 you know there was one I don't know like a year ago so it felt current but even that doesn't feel current now because yeah. I I I haven't like been banging that record, you know, for a few months. So I feel like I, I'm, I'm on a, a, a like, a f- I, I haven't got my groove back at the, for the time being. I'm mostly focusing on my own stuff. <laughs> well, I know even I, so. Yeah, I, let me tell you about that. You really got into this. Got to get into my stuff. That's that's <laughs> underrated. You know. <laughs> well, I, I know even like I've talked to a few bands in Edmonton here and whenever I ask that question, it's that you realize like, yes, yeah, so, like so much of my awareness of what bands are, are like active locally comes from like walking around and seeing posters, right, with like band names on it, right, or getting invited to shows mm-hmm. via Facebook or whatever. And, and when those things don't happen, um, my awareness of those bands just drops so hard, right? <laughs> Um, yes it does yeah exactly and i think one of the benefits of being tapped into this like incredible resource that we have online is that we never stop exploring but i don't have a quick answer for you maybe because half the time i spend is digging deep and finding old stuff um making playlists of guilty pleasures and um, sprinkling in something new that I just heard about. And, and it's, it's fun. It's an active, it's an engaged process, but it's not, um, uh, it's not very focused. (laughs) Right. It's a very unfocused process. And, um, (laughs) and so I, yeah, that's probably why at this present moment I'm coming up with nothing. (laughs) Well, let's, uh, let's, let's pivot on over into the second half of things. Just, I, I guess going off of what we were just talking about, like how, like what has the pandemic looked like for you? How has that kind of gone? Well, I, the the short answer is it hasn't been that different in my life from where I already was. I, I had moved from Toronto to rural New York um, in 2016. And I moved back in 2018 when we when we knew that we were going to have a kid, it was time to be back in Canada. I think everyone, right. all, every Canadian can relate. Like, yeah, let's have a kid in Canada. We're not going to end up in an American hospital. Um, <laughs> but I think the way that the two years went in rural New York and then the year leading up to having a kid and then being young parents, again, something young parents can relate to, it's, it's a sort of hermetic lifestyle. We're sort of c- cut off. And, uh, I, I, I mean, aside from the unemployment thing, I mean, most that that's a shock for most people to suddenly find themselves unemployed. However, as a, as a touring musician, I would be incrementally unemployed any, any time I wasn't on tour. So I, I just so happened I toured, I toured all the time for many years. And then, I mean, I'm making myself sound older than I am. I mean, for at least six, seven years, I was I was touring constantly. And then we took a bit of a break um, where tours were a little more infrequent. And this pandemic has felt akin to that. It's just, it's only starting to sink in now. As we released our deleter record with Holy Fuck. We released that just before the pandemic. And so I did have a whole year of touring 
canceled. So I think I'm only starting to feel the effects of it now. It's taken a whole year for me to start to, the real panic is starting to set in of like, oh, my career might be over. Like, that's kind of how I feel. It may not be, but that's, that's an, it didn't feel that way, way a month in or two months in. It didn't feel that way even when in the summertime when otherwise I would have been on stage in Spain, you know, playing really rad concerts. Like, sure, I missed right. it, but it still felt, it still felt like, oh, it, it'll happen again. But now we're into our second summer and it's just starting to feel like, oh, this is just what I do now. I'm just retired. And I think that's starting to make me feel a little sick to my stomach. So, um, so most of the pandemic for me was business as usual, especially because I had a young kid. Right. Um, but business as usual isn't good. Like we were coming out of a lull. So I yeah. wanted to get back up on top. It just didn't happen. So, hey, it was a familiar feeling. <laughs> Being <laughs> down in the dumps was a little bit familiar. <laughs> did... Uh, I guess did did much of this dusted record then get recorded and and put together in the pandemic or was that mostly kind of a pre-pandemic affair that that's coming out now yeah that's a good question because I think the tone of that that record sets does um from what I've heard from people I've shared it with it does sort of uh it does fit the vibe of what we've been going through and, and for sure therefore i think some of the dialogue some of the narrative about this record does tie in with the pandemic it talks you know what you know our press people want to grab onto is sort of the way it does coincide with the mood the the overall mood the lyrics um the truth of it is i did finish it before mostly i mean i i i recorded the songs rather um I don't want to say quickly. It wasn't like rushed. It's just the songs are simple. So it was a, a, a session of two or three days. I, three days probably where um, I was singing and playing guitar and, and recording a lot. And then I decided I was going to move back to the Maritimes. And that decision was quite confronting. And one of the things that I had to deal with immediately was what what's going to happen with this record because moving is is i just moved down to new york and i just moved back and now i'm going to pick up and move again uh i knew that it was very disruptive and i was afraid that i would never finish this record and i was really happy with it i was happy with the way things were going so before we bought our house out here i did come out to to look and to spend some time with my family and I loaded everything into the car and managed to get my whole home studio out to Nova Scotia where I, I more or less finished it. So gotcha. it was pretty, it was pretty much done. I, I did a one last session, like a mere, you know, weeks before the pandemic really set in. However, I, it does, even for me, it still feels like a pandemic record because it got mixed at that point. So right. I was done it, but, but then I kind of fell into a bit of a stupor like everybody did. And I just sat on it because we were all kind of gritting our teeth and watching the news and trying to figure out what was happening. It didn't feel like the right time to, to finish it. Yeah. So I put it on hold. And then this time last year, once, you know, I found myself sitting around with nothing doing the summer, I finally got around to mixing it and I spent, my evenings, you know, walking around my backyard of my new house, like headphones on, uh, you know, just smoking and listening and making notes. And, and it, it became my soundtrack for that point in my life. So it's funny the way it happened. It's, you know, not to put any kind of fatalistic thing in or clairvoyance into it but i it's almost like i wrote myself a pandemic record <laughs> because i got to it became my soundtrack because i finished it just in time to start doing the real i, I guess the real finishing you know i did i was right i got everything set up and then it was time to get it mixed and to make the masters and to sequence it to choose what songs to keep and what ones to throw out and yeah, that was it. Was last summer's soundtrack for me. Yeah, out of curiosity, uh, do you normally like? 
uh, I guess with with dusted at least, do you normally write more um, than you're going to actually keep on the record, or or is it generally like, mm-hmm. um, you know, you've got twelve tracks, it's going to be a twelve track record roughly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I. I, th- I think I have the most success so far finishing a record if it comes kind of from one session and right. I don't, I don't find I'm, I've done as well with homework and I've, I'm never not writing and I'm never not recording. So, um, I'm never, I shouldn't say I'm never not recording, but I'm never not at least working on music. Like today I'm working on someone else's music, um, and if I get a moment, maybe I'll sit down and try to finish some lyrics and I'm trying to make some plans. But at the same time, I still have about two and a half unfinished records on hard drives that I haven't either found the time or the motivation to finish. So right. there's always unfinished stuff. There's always unrecorded songs. And I just, I find it most successful for me if I try to get as much done at once. So the simpler, like like I was explaining, this, this record was vocals and guitar all at once. I think that really helped because then I didn't have the homework of of singing alone at home. I don't, right. I don't do as well with that. I get frustrated and or, or, or bored or lonely or whatever it is. I, I, I lose the confidence. Um, it's not as fun anymore. If I'm in a studio with a friend working, I think there's a lot more joy. Um, so, so in the case of this last record, I recorded probably about 20 songs. Um, gotcha. and, but it, it could have been 40 if I just had enough time, but I have to cap it. It's like, if I'm going to give myself a digestible chunk, I have to cap it at whatever amount. And I'm always pleased when I get to cut stuff. It makes me feel good to, to <laughs> yeah. pare things down. I think editing is, is beneficial for for people like myself. I, I like limitations and I also like to to have that the confidence of knowing I'm I'm keeping only the best or, or, or at least only my favorite. Yeah. Maybe it's not the best as far as someone else is concerned, but yeah. So so what is what is like the demoing process typically look like for you then? That's the funny thing. Um demoing for me is literally running voice memos on my phone while I'm writing it. So um, there's probably about two times a week or or maybe two times a month at least where I'm picking up my guitar and writing something just because I feel like it. I'm sitting around. I have a a couple moments to spare. And I come up with some chords I like. And I kind of like just phonetically sing. I don't have words. They, They come a lot later. But I'll, I'll, it's more about a melody. I, I like to connect emotionally to something. And I find the, if I like the chords and I come up with a melody that, that stirs something emotionally for me and I like what I'm doing, I'll just immediately record it. And it's usually about a minute and a half of me strumming my guitar and, and kind of humming or whatever. Right. And then it's done. That's my, that is my demo and that gets forgotten. That's what I will not revisit for 10 years gotcha <laughs> that's the thing that i'll like every now and then i'll go back to him and go oh i like this one and i like this one and i and i write a little note down in my journal like oh the one from this day is really cool i should work on it and i'll do that over and over again i'll spend like i'll do that for years just keep this active list of oh i remember that one forgetting and remembering forgetting and remembering and i'm trying not to do that it, it doesn't work very well it's just <laughs> it just it just gives me a lot of, of homework and not a lot of finished material, but I, I enjoy. It. I think it, it captures what I like most about songwriting, which, as best as I can make an analogy, I consider it daydreaming, as opposed to it's not working on a puzzle. I'm not trying to make pop songs. I'm not trying to solve any like riddles of the best song ever written. I'm just daydreaming, and I'm trying to capture it and share it with people that might find it um stirs something in them and maybe allows them to daydream a little bit while they listen to it you know yeah yeah so so what's what's what is uh i guess what do you get out of working on uh material for for dusted as opposed to working on stuff for other projects like we're working on like a holy fuck song um yeah i i 
so far I've been really lucky, I think, to have both of these things. Um, you know, I, it took me a while to dial in what I wanted to do as a songwriter personally. Like I didn't love all my first attempts at it. You know, I have records that people enjoyed that I did under my own name, but I don't really like them so much on, not because I don't think that's, I, it's just, I didn't, I hear somebody who hasn't figured out what they wanted to do yet. So it was really nice to take a break from that, to go to Holy Fuck. And Holy Fuck was the first thing I ever did that I was 100% stoked about. It just felt like it was more who I wanted. It was more me, like, in terms of philosophical approach and ideology. Um, We wrote it all when we get together. It it comes from really ego-free, fun exploration of sound and music, trying to challenge ourselves, trying to fuck with things, trying to make things sound unlike anybody else or any, or at least any other record we've heard, just trying to go out on these limbs and be really free and really fun. And then getting that in front of an audience proved to be super exciting because it was very uh, contagious of an energy. So we just kept it that way. We didn't really change the formula too much over the course of our band. We, we have started to write a bit more and that actually is more complicated now for me. Like, for my identity, I'm having a harder time knowing where I fit because suddenly um, there's an expectation that we're going to write stuff at home and bring it in like a like a songwriting band. And it's like, yeah, but I already got like four of those. You know? <laughs> right, I always yeah. have a bunch of the, you know, whether it's lids or, or dusted, I always have bands where like we're writing and it, it, this is the chords and these are the parts. And then if you want anyone else to play them, you have to teach them. I, I right. love the way that, these things are compartmentalized in very distinct boxes. It feels very healthy. Um, there are two different forms of daydreaming. There are two different forms of of, of playing. It's it's play. It's playful. Um, yeah. And I'm lucky that I have that. I I I love that music comes naturally enough to me and to my bandmates that it's something that it's never overly contrived. Yeah. And, yeah, and that's all I can say. I like that it's two very distinct things. That I feel very lucky about that. Do, do you do you remember um and this is an interesting question I think for me to ask just um cuz this probably happened in the past year for me, but the the first time you wrote something or, or finished a song as as a songwriter and felt um pretty completely satisfied with what had come out instead of um, you know, I have a lot of experiences where I, you, you, where you like finish a song and it's like, yeah, this is good, but these parts could be better. But also I, I just can't get it there right now. Uh, like, do you remember the first song that you wrote where you, you felt just a hundred percent pumped about it? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I think I like, this is something that's maybe we, we, we're not supposed to admit, um, in general, as artists or musicians, <laughs> I like to to listen to what I I do. Like I yeah. enjoy going. I enjoy that process. I think I think it's something I always wanted to do with music. Um, I always, you know, talking about my youth and growing up with music. Maybe naively so. I, one of the reasons I got in interested in picking up a guitar and writing music is because I wanted to hear it. I wanted to hear what I could write. I wanted to enjoy it the same way that I enjoyed music that i was listening to i I think a lot of people do but then they come to the kind of abrupt and unpleasant discovery that people tend to hate listening to themselves so (laughs) (laughs) um and that was really confronting for me like i spent like i said i had a lot of my earlier stuff i just i never could get it right i my first very first band we were such you know you know we just didn't know what we were doing we, no one was there to help us. We were very boorish. We were very uh, ignorant. We, we, were, we didn't have a clue how to do what we were doing. Um, then I figured out a little bit more, but I still didn't figure out how to express myself. I think I wanted to make like Sparkle Horse kind of records. And instead I made like, you know, I was, fans were coming to my shows that liked Matthew Goodband or something. I was like, what the, I'm doing something <laughs> really wrong here. And, uh, yeah, and there was this, it was confronting. Like, I couldn't find it. And for me, that feeling of completeness came with the first Holy Fuck record. It just, it, you know, it, it, it's, 
it got a bit of it got kind of scrutinized in the press at the time because we were starting to build a buzz as a live band and people were excited to know what was going to happen with us and for the most part people did not think that record was a step in the right direction it's <laughs> it's gotten i think it certainly has a lot of cult following and, and yeah. certain people love it but but I loved it. I didn't really care what anyone else thought because I'd had so many kicks at the can to try to figure out who I was and what I wanted to do that by the time that record took shape, I couldn't be more pleased. I was just like, fuck everyone else. I made something that <laughs> I can take acid to. <laughs> like, you know, not necessarily that I had the strength of character at that point in my life to, to journey down a psychedelic path, but still, I could, I could, I could still appreciate the the rawness and the honesty and uh and just the joy in what we were doing and funny enough that process taught me how to go back to my own songwriting uh in in a way that was much more healthy and i think the very yeah. next thing i did was uh under my own name it was uh, coyotes was the name of the ep and that was the first thing of my own with my own voice and my own guitar playing where i was like i can live with this too like i've rounded a corner now where i'm pleased with the type of statements i'm making and recording and it doesn't mean i hit it every time but it it right. sort of it it lit it lit the path you know it showed me here's how you if you just keep doing this you're gonna like what you do yeah well uh you know i think that's as good a place as any to to wrap things up here um what uh, what track would you like to play off of uh, Dusted Three? Um, I I I know. Okay, so there's a single that is the more upbeat one. It's a song called Baseball. Um, I had Jarvis Tavernier. Um, he's from a group called Woods, and he's been doing a lot of good production and mixes and stuff, and for a lot of American bands right now. Um, he mixed it. So I will. It's a bit of a, a you know, kind of a a caution it doesn't sound like the rest of the record as much maybe for that reason different person mixing it so while it's the first single i don't know if it's what i want to throw to and my favorite song on the record is one called they don't know you um it's uh it kind of checks off all the boxes for me it's a bit sparser and it's not as engaging as uh, as a pop song but it's one that i really um i stand behind the direction of it and and the mood it's kind of it's kind of a, a i don't know a bit haunting i i think i feel haunted when i was into it. I, f- I feel the ghosts so i like that one and i start the album with a song called not offering and that that obviously is a good one to start with that's why i put it at the front of the album so those are like three that i like to kind of play for people um if choosing one is hard um they don't know you might be my favorite so i don't know which but not offering is a good one to start with so hey I don't know. Can I be vague and you pick it? And yeah. Let people know what you chose. <laughs> you know, let, let's do not offering because I'm a, I'm a big fan of, uh, you know, I this is like a tangential thing right at the end. I'm like a huge uh, track listing geek. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, I really love pulling apart the way that people structure records. And boy, just uh, first track is, is always a good place to start because it's the first track. <laughs> I love that. And thank you for reminding me that. I, I, I appreciate that very much because I agree. And, and uh, you know, we get so fixated on singles. And these days, the first track is rarely a single because people are going to hear it first anyway. You know, it becomes <laughs> a single by virtue of how people stream, you know, right. how we stream media these days. Uh, the first track is often going to get more plays than the fifth or the certainly the last. Absolutely, so yeah. No one really, no one throws the first one out as a single, and uh, and uh, I'm glad you reminded me that yes, that's exactly where we should start. So thank you. <laughs> Perfect. Well, uh, this is uh, this is a song called "Not Offering" from uh, Dusted Three, which is out. I just noticed now, looking at the Bandcamp page, Bandcamp says July 30th. It's out on July 23rd, right? <laughs> it's. It's pretty disorganized at the moment. <laughs> Thank you. For, uh, I'm going to take that up with my management and I'll let them know <laughs> the discrepancy. <laughs> Thank you. Well, it's it's out soon. It'll be out by the time this episode comes out. Uh, Brian, thanks so much for sitting down to talk. It was, uh, it was a real pleasure. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. 
I really appreciate it. Thank you. Inside the Artist Studio is produced by Sean Davis Newton for the Cups and Cakes Network. The featured track, Not Offering, was played with permission from Dustin. Thanks to Laundry Week for the use of their song, Nothing on My Mind, from the Grimpy EP as our intro and outro music. Inside the Artist Studio is one of the many ways the Cups and Cakes Network highlights Canadian music. Visit our website, cupsandcakespod.com, to browse our audio, video, and written content. That's Cups, the letter N, cakespod.com. Thanks for listening.